All right. Hello and welcome. Raf Jello here from RT Sport. And just over a year ago, before the 2022 FIFA World Cup kicked off, we examined some of the off-field issues in Qatar, particularly around the rights of migrant workers. But what has changed since uh, in the year since the tournament? And what are the concerns about 2034 with Saudi Arabia set to host that edition of the World Cup? Last October, I spoke to Amnesty International's Head of Economic and Social Justice, Stephen Cockburn, about issues in Qatar, and with Amnesty recently releasing a report called A Legacy in Jeopardy, Continuing Abuses of Migrant Workers in Qatar One Year After the World Cup. I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen again to revisit what we discussed before and casting ahead to what lies ahead in the future. Stephen, thanks very much uh, for taking the time. No, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be essentially a follow on from our um, chat last year. And I guess one of the questions, actually, the last question I think I asked you at the time was what your concerns were in regard to what happens when the eyes of the world and especially the world's media moves on after a year, two years, whatever. And we're a year on, obviously, and obviously the eyes of the the eyes of the world has moved on to other issues that are happening around the world in terms of human rights and workers rights but from the amnesty report and the the conclusion i i'm taking from it is that the sense of progress in qatar around those issues has stalled and also that it's sort of shifted from the construction sector to the service industry yeah that's right i mean so you know just to kind of recap i guess a few years before the world cup there were these very big promises um of quite potentially transformative reforms in, in Qatar in terms of um, changing labour laws, increasing minimum wage, better health and safety legislation, increased freedom for workers to move around, um, which you know really had the potential to, to, to improve the lives of, of hundreds of thousands of workers. And we saw some progress um, ahead of the World Cup um, uh, towards that, but actually nowhere near enough and still, um, you know, still widespread abuses that persisted when the tournament kicked off. We've obviously continued to follow um, what's been happening over the last year and continue to do our research in Qatar. Our overall conclusion is there's been a few areas of small progress, but largely the momentum feels like it's been lost. And there's a risk that this potential legacy that was there could be squandered. Um, um, you know, there has been, you know, we've seen slightly better enforcement, for example, about um, workers and working in the midday, in the midday sun around, you know, in the midday hours during the summer, that's probably better enforced than it used to be. But a lot of we still, you know, a lot of the the, the promises around enforcing, you know, um, enfor enforcing enforcing laws on wage abuse, for example, or on recruitment fees, or on a whole range of other issues, just really haven't moved forward, and it feels like there's a bit of stagnation going on. And you know, there was a, a burst of activity in the years in the, in the World Cup, but obviously the media spotlight moves on, the public spotlight moves on, and it does we are worried that um that, that things have slowed down uh, quite quite drastically yeah and some of those issues as you mentioned we might delve into one or two of them in mm. in more detail but the restricted ability to change jobs which was mm. a problem leading up to last year still continues to be an issue high rates of wage theft as well on top of it and uh, the investigations in regard to the death deaths of workers there's still um problems there um and also, I think the, the mention of the trade unions, again, migrant workers can't join trade unions in Qatar. But what is the biggest impediment you feel um, on all of those issues overall? Or what is the recurring theme that you would see? Yeah, I think, you know, there, there is an economic background in the country as well. You know, there's been a big, you know, there's a, there's a construction, you know, a lot of the construction, a lot of the energy behind that has stopped. And there's a bit of an economic squeeze that also provides excuses for for businesses um, who want to put costs on their workers. Um and um, but of course that that really increases the obligation um, on the government to in, in, enforce its laws. And I think the reality is the whole country isn't having a bit of a uh, you know it, 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 it's it's having a bit of a pause in a sense after the World Cup. And and I think there's a 
you know, that that momentum has, has essentially been lost and the pressure has been lost. There's obviously been huge geopolitical challenges um, and other things over the last year as well. But ultimately, it does feel like when the spotlight has gone away, the urgency and the, and the impetus has gone. And Qatar can, can do this. It's one of the richest countries in the world. It has vast, vast uh, gas resources. Um, it, it can invest more in this. It is a lot of it's not saying it could click his fingers and everything would be correct tomorrow. That, that That's just not realistic. But it can do a lot more than is being done uh, if the will is there. Yeah. And in regard to the issue of wage theft, maybe you might be able to define for people who maybe aren't uh, that au fait with actually what that what that what that actually means. But also, it seems uh, the one of the issues is the state is often the client of some of these companies. Mm-hmm. And then if there if there is, let's say, a delay in payment, it seems there is a domino effect and the knock on effect is felt down the line all the way down to the migrant workers at the lowest scale. That's right. So, you know, there has been various sort of liquidity issues, I guess, within within the economy, within the state um, since the World Cup. But the people who pay for that have been the workers because they're the most vulnerable and they've got the, the least power. Uh, and so if there is a, a payment issue, it is wages that are often stopped. Um, so w- workers are under contract. They, they've got it. They should be given a guaranteed wage. There's now a minimum wage in Qatar. Um, but but all too often, companies will cease p- payments for a number of months. Sometimes they will just cut contracts altogether while payment, while, while wages are owed. Or often they'll be made to work overtime and will not be paid for that. You know, these are relatively common. Um, they're not universal uh, at all. There are plenty of companies who pay on time and, and, and correctly, but there are far too many companies who don't. We we see just from, from the the numbers of complaints that go through the labour courts, for example, is between twenty and thirty thousand wage complaints every year. But that itself will just be a, a subsection of of people who who have faced issues because there are many other people who. Um, who uh, decide to cut and run and feel they have to go home rather than fight months and months uh, in court to get wages that they're not even sure they would get in the end. Yeah, and then there's the issue of the non-objection uh, certificate or the NOC, of course, which uh, was not required by law even leading up to last year. That had been that had been re- repealed, but it seems that still some companies are advertising roles where they are asking for NOCs as well. That's right. So one of the big and, and one of the most important reforms um, that Qatar introduced was removing what was called the non-objection certificate. So before um, 2021, I think it was, um, there, you know, if you wanted to change your job, you needed the, your, you needed your boss's permission to do so. Uh, otherwise, you were stuck in your job. And that's really important for workers because, I mean, if they want to escape an abusive situation, they were absolutely unable to do so. They couldn't, or even if they just wanted a better living conditions, they want better working conditions like all of us want. That they weren't able to do so, and it put huge, huge amounts of power in the in the um, um, in the hands of employers, who some of whom would, would abuse that power. Now that was removed, which was a really important step. Um, could really, however, it's been reintroduced in many informal ways. Um, now, uh, in some in some companies, they they still demand a, a, the government will still demand a letter um, of permission, which is essentially the same thing. You get many companies that advertise. We saw we collected a number of job adverts you find online that essentially says this non-objection certificate is still needed. It's illegal, but it still happens. Um, or you find that other, um, otherwise, when workers have left uh, the, uh, the, the 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 company quite legally to do so, uh, that company will file a charge of what's called absconding, um, which is when uh, essentially they've been accused of, of of illegally fleeing a company, and that can put their visa at risk and put themselves at risk and it can lead to deportation. And it it, it makes workers very, very uh, vulnerable. 
uh, and, so, and, it's a, and it's a way that companies can use to retaliate uh, against workers who, who leave or, or threaten to leave. So there's still a, a range of ways, legal and illegal, that companies restrict workers' movement and keep that the bargaining power of workers um, low. Yeah, and the overall impression I'm getting, of course, and I think as you, you talked about last year and what seems to be a, the the continuing problem is the enforcement uh, of laws seems to be arguably the biggest thing. You mentioned some improvements and they seem to have two new labour courts as well, which will deal with the backlog of cases. But is that still a bit of a drop in the ocean? It, it's still, I mean, so there have previously been three, three labour courts and these courts were set up a few years ago uh, with the idea that it should be easier for workers. It was it used to be almost impossible who, who have um, had wages not paid, for example, that's the most common thing that's brought to them, where they should be able to be treated in, in a short period and either forces the, the, the employer to repay them or there's a, actually a government fund that if the, if the, if the company is unable to, then the government will, will, will provide some money to the worker to do so. Um, but the, it's been beset by problems in terms of accessibility. One of the biggest problems has been that backlogs of tens and tens of thousands of cases and taking many months, if not a year, um, to and sometimes more for case, cases to reach the court, and and then what happens is in, in that process is that workers who are desperate, perhaps they don't have a job going, perhaps they need to get home, they just take whatever the, the, is offered to them by the company. So they might be owed five thousand dollars, but they'll accept one thousand five hundred and a flight home, you know, just because that because otherwise they feel they won't get anything. So two new courts have been introduced just at the end of last year. Um, that's obviously a good thing. Uh, that hopefully that will speed things up. Um, whether it's enough, I don't. I mean, it doesn't seem like it is so far, but it will be an improvement, uh, and and I think you know that's something that needs to. That, you know, that's one of the small areas that you, you you can say that that something has moved. That that court still needs to be made more accessible to workers. Um, very very importantly, it also they, they also need to find ways for workers to be able to access that court if they've already left the country. It's what happens in many many cases. The workers go through a difficult period. They lose their jobs and their companies essentially offer to pay them to go home or they decide to go home themselves. And once you're out of the country, there's no real way at the moment to, to be able to uh, access compensation. Uh, and that would be a huge thing um, for, the, for Qatar to do and a really, really important thing that, they, that, that we, we think they should be doing. Yeah, and given the course, it's in we're talking in the shadow of the World Cup, and obviously before that, it was in the build up to it. And FIFA, of course, are the organizers of the World Cup who also awarded the tournament to Qatar. And I was in touch with FIFA; they did respond in regards to some of the issues in and around, um, you know, the issue of migrant workers in Qatar. So this is before I um, before we expand on that from the Amnesty International point of view, just uh, will mention what the FIFA spokesperson told me: international experts and trade union representatives who have assessed and collaborated in the labor rights program for FIFA World Cup workers have repeatedly recognized that major steps forward have occurred in the labor rights sphere. According to the International Labor Organization, Qatar's labor reforms have been significant and benefited hundreds of thousands of workers, with the World Cup being an important catalyst for these reforms. It is undeniable that significant progress has taken place, and it is equally clear that the enforcement of such transformative reforms takes time and that heightened efforts are needed to ensure the reforms benefit all workers in the country. And I remember last year, um, you told me that Amnesty had written to FIFA and uh, in regard about the com compensation fund, which was a big issue at the time, um, but that no response had been issued to you at that time. What communications have you had with um, FIFA in the meantime, in the year since? So we, we, we have a dialogue with FIFA and we keep in touch with them. The most important thing in relation to compensation, for example, that's happening at the moment, you know, you can remember the round of the World Cup, there was a huge, huge campaign 
from human rights groups, trade unions, players, sponsors, football associations, calling on, on FIFA and Qatar to compensate the workers who made the World Cup possible because they'd lost money, they'd lost lives, you know, they're, they're, there's huge losses that those workers um, endured and incurred uh, to make the World Cup possible. And FIFA made $7.5 billion out of that tournament. So we felt it's fair that, that there is a compensation fund to, to, to repay. That was initially dismissed um, uh, around the World Cup, just at the start of the World Cup um, last year, saying that there are you know, mechanisms in place to deal with that, which isn't true. Um, what happened since is that um, there's been some movement in, in the sense that um, the Norwegian Football Association put a motion towards the FIFA Congress in March of this year, um, calling on FIFA to um, to look at ways to remedy uh, migrant workers um, who faced abuses during the tournament. Um, on the back of that, uh, FIFA then committed to conduct an independent review into uh, what remedy was needed, what compensation would be needed. Um, that review is ongoing. Uh, the consultations have been happening. We expect that to be published end of this year, early next year, you know, in the near future. Uh, and we, of course, hope that that will provide recommendations to go forward. Now, whether FIFA then accepts those recommendations and actually starts delivering uh, uh, resources and a compensation mega remains to be seen because that aspect, of course, becomes very political. Um, but we, we think, um, you know, according to their own policies, according to international human rights standards, and according to what we and many others have documented over the last decade, FIFA does have to provide real remedy for workers, real money on the table that that looks that that starts to right some wrongs and starts to make real improvements in the likes of in the lives of workers and their families who made the World Cup possible. Yeah, and I did that was one of the things I did ask uh, FIFA about was in regard to this review. So this was their response from FIFA spokesperson. At the moment, the Human Rights and Social Responsibility Subcommittee is currently conducting an independent assessment on whether the steps FIFA has taken to date with regard to access to remedy of workers in the context of the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 are in line with FIFA's human rights commitments and responsibilities under relevant international standards and whether additional steps would be recommended in view of further strengthening the tournament's legacy for migrant workers. This work of the subcommittee is currently ongoing. So uh, aside from that issue, uh, I remember on the eve of the World Cup, the FIFA president then Gianni Infantino, there was that speech I think that went around the world, the today I feel, and then there was usually, whether it's an nationality or some other sort of identifying factor he would add to to the sentence and maybe there was scope for debate there were some criticisms he made of the nation some of the more critical nations maybe there's scope for debate about hypocrisy etc but in terms of the human rights and the uh you know from from your point of view where you know you're talking about compensation funds but this seems like a it was almost like a defiant response and almost a deflection um what was what was your view kind of i suppose the amnesty view listening to that speech at the time, it was uh, we were we were extremely disappointed by that speech because it was deflecting. It was conflating a lot of different issues for a start. It was personalizing the issue uh, into his presidency, and it was moving the discussion away from what is what are the abuses that migrant workers faced, and what are the responsibilities of FIFA to remedy that, which are, 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 according to their own policies are clear. It felt like something that was polarizing. It, it didn't feel like something that was searching for solutions. It was happening, of course, in the heat of the moment of the World Cup. The, the debate was very fierce at that time. Um, and and that, the, the fierceness of that debate and, and, uh, probably prevented uh, the ability to think about what could be done practically to, to, to fix problems. I hope we're in a different space now. I actually really hope that, you know, now the controversies around the tournament have slightly died down, that we're actually able to look at this a bit more objectively and say, 
This tournament happened. It made a huge amount of money for FIFA. It happened on the backs of workers who faced abuses. And FIFA's own policies and its own human rights obligations say that it should be um, uh, that it should be providing remedy and compensation. And now the question is, what's the best and most practical way to do that? To use just a tiny bit of the, the money that was made from that tournament to reimburse the people who made it possible. Um, FIFA, uh, they announced a legacy fund, for example, from the tournaments. We've heard really no information since then about what that will be used for. The last few tournaments, that has been worth about $100 million. Um, at what we have said is that that should be a starting point and used to remedy for to workers. You know, it's it's good to invest in in, in legacy, um, you know, measures for the help workers in the future, but we also have to look about um, uh, remedy for the workers who were involved in this, in, in this, in this tournament. Uh, and that provide that using that legacy fund could be a practical way uh, to ensure compensation and find a solution to, to, to the problem that we all know is, is existed. Yeah. And then um, of course, as, as we move forward, so 2026, we know the tournament is taking place in North America, essentially between Mexico, United States and Canada. 2030 has also been announced um, and it's taking place across largely three countries, but we're going to say six um, different mm -hmm. locations. And then 2034, there is Saudi Arabia. And given some of the human rights issues that um, I think have been well documented in around um, Saudi Arabia over recent years and over recent decades, what's Amnesty International's view on that in regard to, you know, lessons learned from the build up to Qatar? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it's worth saying that, you know, these the human rights principles and human rights standards that have been set by FIFA in line with international human rights law don't just apply to, to Qatar and Saudi Arabia. They also apply to the 2026 World Cup in USA, Mexico and Canada, and also the 2030 World Cup in Spain, Portugal, Morocco. Every one of these countries has human rights issues. Every one of these countries has human rights concern. And in every one of these countries, there is an opportunity to use FIFA's human rights frameworks and, and, and the sort of the leverage that comes with a World Cup tournament um, to, to make improvements. And that could be around police violence in the US. It could be around the securitization of, of um, so the militarization of security forces in Mexico. It could be around racism and sexism in Spain. Um, it could also apply, of course, to the Euros, uh, Euro 2028 in the UK and Ireland. You know, these, these are human rights principles that apply to every tournament um, and the standards need to be the same. Specifically in relation to Saudi Arabia, um, we need to see those human rights standards um, applied. Um, so the selection of the host hasn't been finalised in any of, in either 2030 or 2034 case. That will happen over a process um, over the next year. Um, each of these bidding countries will um, have to undertake an independent human rights uh, analysis to show what the big risks would be of hosting a tournament. And we'll have to submit a human rights plan to say uh, how they would overcome those. So, for example, in the, in the case of Saudi Arabia, it should be fairly clear that an independent human rights assessment, if done properly, would highlight huge risks of exploiting migrant workers. It would it would highlight the fact that there is no freedom of expression in Saudi Arabia, that if you are a human rights activist, you will end up in prison or worse. It, will, it should show that tra trade unions are banned. It should show that um, the, um, it's illegal to uh, homosexual activity is illegal. Um, it, it would show that there are real risks to, to journalists who, who speak out. Now, those should be, those should, you know, you could write, this needs to be done properly, but those are clearly well-documented risks um, that, that ourselves and others have documented over many times. There are no, no great surprises here. What's really key is that Saudi Arabia takes this seriously to 
to, to announce what reforms it might be taking in these areas. Will it work with the International Labour Organization on a series of labour reforms in the same way that the Qatar belatedly did? Will it revise its penal code? Will it revise its laws on freedom of expression? What will it, how will it welcome um, fans uh, of every sexual orientation? Um, that needs to be clear. And before something is awarded, before the tournament is awarded, there needs to be a binding commitment with FIFA on those issues. And that could provide a basis over the coming 11 years to make progress on those issues. The risk is if those commitments are not made, um, then we face the same situation in Qatar, where you've got a decade of exposing issues, debating issues, and maybe getting some, some change at the end, where actually there's an opportunity to get some, get some change uh, from the start. Yeah, and as you said, 2013, 2034 haven't been fully finalised, but I think the way the bidding process has been done for 2034, uh, where it's uh, restricted to a particular confederation uh, geographically, and the fact that the Saudi Arabia appears to be the only uh, bid remaining, I think Australia um, had pulled out, means it, it's yeah. probably, perhaps it is almost a fait accompli that it will be uh, heading to Saudi Arabia. And as you said, you know, FIFA has its own... Um, you know, human rights policy and even looking at their the policy from 2017, what it states, FIFA appropriately reflects its human rights commitment in the requirements for the bidding and hosting of FIFA competitions, notably by including in such requirements a clause committing to the principles of this policy and takes human rights into account in the selection of a host of host countries. Um, so based on the reporting around human rights, would it be Amnesty's view that Saudi Arabia then, as you said, would not be the most appropriate uh, host based on human rights considerations as things are right now? It would be hard to see how Saudi Arabia could meet FIFA's human rights standards without change. That, that's that's very very clear. Um, we're not we're not we and, and and many others will not say that Saudi Arabia should never host a World Cup or should never be able to bid for a World Cup. That's you know it's it's a it's a big footballing country. The pop, football is very popular in the country, and there are changes happening. But currently, you could say that Saudi Arabia does not meet the standards set by FIFA and set by international human rights standards. That can change. So, are there a, what will what will Saudi Arabia say and commit to, not just say, but really commit to and show proof of that there will be changes in the country that will allow uh, the tournament to take place without seeing violations of, of human rights uh, and while driving positive change in the country. I think that is really what's at stake over the next year. Yeah. And I suppose a final point, um, as you said, there's 11 years between now and then we had a sort of decade long, um, give or take, road towards Qatar, with, which a lot of things stalled and a lot of debate and argument. And as you've as the report uh, that Amnesty has put out, um, you know, that even a year on some of those lingering issues still exist and some of those debates uh, continue. So if it's a starting point from now and with the potential that Saudi Arabia is going to host 2034, what do you want to see from FIFA and also from the Saudi Arabian state in that time span? Mm. So I think we we would want to see um, clearly a program of labour reform uh, in terms of Saudi Arabia has a very similar labour system than Qatar in terms of you know restrictions on leaving the country, changing jobs, you know risks of working in the heat in the same way. Um, and in a sense, it's on a bigger scale. The number of migrant workers in Saudi Arabia is much larger. It's a larger country. The, the, the range of construction projects in Saudi Arabia is enormous. It's a bigger World Cup as well. There's greater infrastructure demands on, on, on the tournament. Um, so you, we'd need to see a very serious program of labor reform. We'd need to see um, um, real commitments about reforms to freedom of expression so that you know human rights activists are able to scrutinize what's going on, that they're able to 
to, to monitor what's happening in, in construction and in, 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 in other issues in the country and speak about that freely because that's just not possible right now. You could be, you know, there's, there's cases over the last year of women who've been um, imprisoned for decades, for, you know, one woman for 34 years just for tweeting or even retweeting. Now, that is not a context in which, um, you know, you could do realistic human rights monitoring. And that is really important to, to know what's been happening. The one thing you say, can say about Qatar is they allowed us to come and monitor, to, to do research there. They allowed other organizations to come and, and, and global trade unions to come and see what's going on and, and to speak out. You know, that, that was a really important thing about driving progress. And, you, and it's really a condition that we'd need to see in Saudi Arabia as well. And we'd need to see guarantees in terms of the safety of, um, of, of minorities, including the LGBT, uh, LGBT community. These are really, really important that can't just be left to the end, can't just be, you know, sort of a vague everyone's welcome. They have to be really clear legal guarantees uh, around all those issues. Yeah. And of course, uh, the report uh, on Qatar that Amnesty International has released, it's called A Legacy in Jeopardy, Continuing Abuses of Migrant Workers in Qatar One Year After the World Cup. And Stephen, thanks very much for your time. No, thank you.